Hello and welcome to the Unscripted Podcast, where we have a more casual chat with some of our friends, former guests, and industry pals. I'm your host, Kevin Tanaga. Today we have back on the show a writer, producer, showrunner who has worked on TV series such as NCIS New Orleans, Lost, and Necessary Roughness, uh, feature films like Puck Everlasting and Tangled, and is a sole proprietor of one of the best Twitter accounts in the biz, Jeffrey Cubs Win Lieber. Thanks for coming on with us today, Jeff. Uh, well, listen, Cubs win is now, now I will come on once a week if you need me. Whatever you need, as long as the Cubs win, I'll be okay. And a happy belated birthday to you, sir. Thank you. I, I may have told this last time, but I was at the Bartman game. Oh, were you? Um, yeah, so, I think you did. I think you mentioned that. Yeah, so so I've been at I, I I my soul is Cubs win and my reality is Cubs lose Cubs lose <laughs> Cubs lose. Well, you know it. it you're in the what is the 117th time is the charm? Isn't that what? The, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's 1908, and we're yeah, it's 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 close. It's a lot. It's a lot more than it should be. Since we're on the topic of Cubs, uh, we'll get to writing yeah. stuff. So if you're not a sports fan, not a Cubs fan, not a baseball fan, you may skip ahead a little bit. But we're, you know, <laughs> it, this is this is the unscripted podcast. We're going to do what we want. Um, so uh, Cubs look good. The Cubs look real good on a scale from like Jerry Springer show to Breaking Bad. What do you think of the job that Theo uh, Epstein is doing with your beloved Cubbies? Well, well, look, look. I mean, at the moment, we're talking Breaking Brad season one, episode three, which is, I think, my favorite of all of all that. Right now, it's you know, we'll see. The great, the the greatest and worst thing you could say to the Cubs fan is Cubs are favorite, because right. you know, um, I'm a big fan of PTI, uh, uh, Michael Wilbon sure, and, yeah. and Tony Corn. Uh, so, and 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 Kornheiser keeps one of the one of the uh, hosts keeps talking about how Joe Madden is riding Secretariat, mm-hmm. and there's nothing worse for a Cubs fan than feeling like, oh my God, we should win because we always lose. Um, well, if it, if it makes you feel any better, the Red Sox fans felt the same thing until a few, you know, like ten years ago, and all of a sudden, you know, they got three rings. So yes, but but as you notice, they have three rings, and we're still sitting on 109 years, whatever the heck it is. <laughs> right. So until you break it, um, yeah. you know, it, Charlie Brown never kicks the football. Chicago, uh, Chicago Cubs fan never gets a taste of champagne. Yeah, I don't know. I've got a good feeling. I, I shouldn't say that, but uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, Joe Madden's fantastic. Uh, you know, they've got such a great young core pitching. I mean, and, and it's unexpected stuff, too. Like, you know, Jake Arrieta winning the Cy Young and, you know, I mean, it's... Well, I understand, but like I've, you know, again, I've been trying to contain myself, and every once in a while, I'll look at their. I think they're like eight and seventeen in the preseason, which I know means absolutely nothing. But to right, a Cubs me... fan, you know, it's like, yeah, I, all I can feel is like Game of Thrones, right? Winter is coming. Winter <laughs> is coming. Yeah, winter's been coming there for five seasons, but it's coming, and I just feel like something bad's gonna happen. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, do you think the Cubbies are gonna win a hundred games this year? Yes, I think they win 100 games. I think that part is not the problem. I think right. the problem comes in, you know, what, again, I was at the Bartman game, and I really do believe that the pro- one of the problems with being a Cub player is you. This, this, I'm from Chicago. 
it is my favorite place in the whole world or one of my favorite places in the whole world, uh, forgiving the weather. And you go there to play and you really want to win for that town. That town is a good group of people. And the pressure of that eventually gets to everybody. The pressure, I, I tell you, if the team that wins the first World Series there, they will never have to pay for a meal in their lives. Right. Um, you know, they will change and alter the very chemistry of those of that city. And that pressure eventually gets to them. That's why they lose. Even the clubhouse attendants are going to get free donuts for life in Chicago. Oh, I, you know, the, the, the second cousin of the four, you know, uh, Anthony Rizzo's third cousin will be allowed to, you know, enter uh, Vatican City. You know, <laughs> it, 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 the whole thing is it will, it will lose our... There was a script years and years and years ago uh, that went around town, a film script called Stop the Cubs. And it was about a guy who was on the International Space Station and he is watching in the Cubs win the World Series and three seconds later the Earth explodes. <laughs> and he... And he discovers that there's a fault line under Chicago and all the huge, fat Chicago Cubs fans jumping up and down caused the world to explode. And so he has to build a time machine and go back and stop the Cubs from winning the World Series. That's pretty clever. It's great. Uh, it's never got made. I don't, I, I don't know who the writer was, but I know that the fact that there's a moral dilemma there <laughs> that there's this, like, it tells you how we feel about our baseball team. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I grew up a Dodger fan, so I don't quite understand that, but, uh... No. <laughs> you know what? Screw you. <laughs> no, I, I, I have no... My only problem with Dodgers, with, 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 with the L.A. Dodgers, is actually not you, but the rest of the city who so casually takes those victories for granted. Right. Same thing with the Lakers, which is that, you know... You can go to a playoff game with the Dodgers, and, by, and it won't be till the third inning that that that, that stadium will fill up. Right. Um, we need more. We need more real Dodger fans. Right. Or you know, at the, the the seventh inning, people are already streaming out, and you know, it's a playoff game, or you know, even if it's a close game, yeah. people are streaming out the, the, the turnstiles. Really? Just to beat. The well, that's, yeah. Although, although I gotta say, that's a traffic issue, and I don't totally uh, <laughs> don't totally play that. Yeah, being in LA, I guess you can kind of understand. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll revisit this in August, and we'll see where we all are. All right. We'll, we'll keep up to date with the Cubs, and, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, you know Rizzo, Russell, and Bryant don't all test positive for PEDs, and Arietta, <laughs> Lackey, and Lester don't all of a sudden get into a car accident together or something. And yes, and I, I appreciate the generosity of your spirit here. That's all I can say. Yeah. I mean, I. I do, I do like the Cubs. I went to a spring training game a few years back, and I actually sat behind uh, 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 Theo. Theo, and he was talking to oh, Peter, yeah, yeah. Peter Gammons, and uh, I was trying to overhear what they were saying, but I could hear what they were saying. It was too loud. Uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I've been to, to Cubs spring training games, and, I, you know, I, I, I have an old autograph from uh, the Hawk Andre Dawson, on a baseball card. Oh, yeah. So, That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, Mark Price, who didn't do any, who did, had a great one year or two, two not, no, his name, uh, Mark Grace. I got Mark a, Grace, a yeah, auto, yeah, yeah. Autograph, you know. So, yeah, no, I, I followed the Cubs back when I was uh, younger. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of fell into the, the whole Dodger niche. I don't know why. I, I do, I, I, I was a Chicago Bears fan when I was younger. Um, we didn't have a team out here, 
and uh, yeah, and it kind of led into the Cubs. I didn't really get into well, the you know, It's it's hard not to like most of these Chicago teams because for the most part, they're um, they're blue collar, yeah. they're decent people. I, I mean, I don't know why that is. Whereas whereas the, some of the teams have a little more flash to them. Right. Part of part of you know the flash is you're losing. It's a little hard to be flashy and losing. <laughs> right. But I suppose years ago the Bulls used to have like Reggie Theus who had some flash and they would lose too. So sure. You know what? Yeah. And even now, I mean, a guy will you know hit a home run, he'll flip his bat, and they're down by six runs or something, and you know. Yeah, yeah. Strutting around the base. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, do you think Goose Gossage was right? Do you think the young young kids today have no respect for the game, or do you think it's just the changing of the times? No, I think I, I think it's an even split between between um, you know um, the baby boomers don't understand the millennials and the millennials are assholes. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's a right. you know because I see some of these guys. Some of the old rules of baseball are antiquated and are sort of silly anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, this concept of when you can celebrate, when you can't celebrate, and all that sort of stuff, and um, you know. I, I, baseball baseball needs to change. It needs to adapt a little bit because because there are less of us that can put up with. I mean, it's hard to watch baseball. Baseball's slow, um, and, and you have to. So it's going to have to, in some way, just adapt slightly, like television and like everything else, to right. to a to a, an audience that has less less patience and more choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. Um, how they keep altering. The all-star game and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, I mentioned, we talked about it last time you were on the podcast, and you mentioned it briefly now in terms of your Twitter account, the showrunner rules, which you uh, graciously put up on a semi-regular basis, uh, and it's just full of great insights and information uh, so if you're a new listener and you don't know, go to at Jeff Lieber on Twitter. Follow him. Soak in the magic. Uh, it's really great stuff. He's, he's so generous with his time. He even answers a lot of questions for you guys, um, especially for those of you wanting to write for film and TV. You should definitely go there if you're not and you don't make it. That's probably the reason you're never going to know. I'm just kidding. Um, but you definitely <laughs> well, should follow Jeff on yeah. Twitter if you're not doing it. Thank you. Well, and let me let me dispense with. I think there's three questions that get asked all the time that, I, that, I'll, that I'll put out here because they come up every time. Which is the first one is everyone says, "So do you write a spec script, meaning a script, uh, a, a a version of a script that uh, for a TV show that already exists or an original pilot in right. terms of getting read?" And my answer is always, you know, write an original script because there's now so much TV out there that in order to understand if a spec script is good or bad, you have to know the TV show and your favorite show, which is the you know ten o'clock drama on Animal Channel, may not be something I'm at all aware of. Um, and a lot of these shows are now serialized, and so how do you drop into a serialized show in any way, shape, or form? The second, uh, you know, so so I say write an original because if you can write, you can write, and and you know there's also a possibility that somebody will read it and go, oh my god, this is great. Right. Um, the second is sort of how do I get started. And, it's, and there are only kind of two ways into the industry right now. The first one is you make it in some other medium. You become a novelist. Uh, and then people start saying, hey, do you think you should write for TV or film? Or you 
um, or you uh, hike around the world on one uh, by hopping on one leg, and somebody wants to tell your story, and in the process of doing that, you you start to to move your way into the industry. So there's there's that way, which is make it in some other medium. The only other way is to get in through sort of a mentor, and the only way to get to be a, to get into a mentor is to find somebody who you have a relationship with, who's willing to take you under the wing, their wing, and hire you as a you know a writer's assistant essentially, or a director's assistant. Which leads to the third question, which is how do you find that person? And the answer to that is always just you got to come out here, L.A. or New York, and you get a job that doesn't suck your soul away, and but covers your rent, and then you meet everybody, and um, you know. Uh, the last three writer's assistants I've, I've had, all of which have gotten credits over time, um, were people, one of which I knew through family, one of which I met through reference out here, uh, one of which was just somebody who I'd gotten to know through another job we had together. Um, and, you know, I, I trusted them. They seemed like they were smart and good, and so I gave them a shot, and that's how that works. So those are the three questions I always get asked in those, in those Twitter questions. So I put them out there. Well, and I think that leads into the problem with the fourth question. Just guess. The fourth question that you probably get asked a lot is, are you looking for a new writer's assistant right now, and how do I apply for that job? So if you want to answer that. Well, one, well I'm yeah, – exactly. I'm not, um, <laughs> but when I am, but when I am, I simply will throw it out there. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, I did one of these, and somebody said, do you actually look on Twitter? I'm like, do people actually look on Twitter? I'm like, no, not really. But though I'll say on my last staff, Somebody who I hired, I got to know through Twitter. They had their own sort of personality on Twitter. I got to know them, and they seemed really smart. Mm-hmm. And so I hired them on, the, you know, got to know them and hired them onto the show. And so all I can say is that any relationship you have is useful, you know. And so you just try to foster them. I mean, my first job came, my first, my first real agent came through this weird ass, you know round the corner relationship that I had to a woman who I'd met at a party and we got to be friends and she read my script and gave it to an, uh, she was a, an assistant in an agency and she gave it to a friend and they did, gave it to their agent and you know, it was this process, but it, it, um, it's all about knowing somebody. Right. Absolutely. You can't really, uh, emphasize that enough. Yeah. It really is. Um, and that's not to say that, that, all who you know, and there's no sort of hard work, and there's not uh, writing ability and talent involved as well, but uh, knowing people and have, being known as a good person, a responsible person, is, is definitely important, especially in television. Well, especially, I was say, especially in television, in features, you could be an asshole, you could sit in your room, you could write, <laughs> hand in brilliance, and hand it in, and no one has ever has to spend any time with you other than the 10 notes goal they have. In TV, your entire life is spent in the bunker with people. And so it's not about who you know. It's, you mean, it's not like, oh, my brother's the head of Paramount. That's, yes, that sometimes happens, and, but that is the daily way to look at it. It really is about how many people you know and how well you have, you have gotten to show them that you're decent and smart and conscientious and caring. Right, because because again, I got to work every day with this small, small group of people, and I have to know at some level that they ha- they have my back and I have theirs. Right, absolutely. Um, actually, since we're nearing staffing season, and you being an experienced veteran showrunner, 
uh, I always like to ask anyway, because you never know what the answer is going to come out. I think we've touched about it from last time, but sort of as a refresher, uh, as a showrunner, what are, obviously other than agent manager, what are some of the ways that you find new staff writers? What are you looking for? Uh, again, this is something, a question I'm sure you get asked a lot. We've asked it a lot, but every showrunner is different. How do you put a staff together, and, and where do you find new writers? Right, right. Well, so from the macro first, you know, the, the worst, not the worst, but I think the, the, the um, outside view is, oh, you get seven really great writers, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's great, but really what you need is seven people with different skill sets. So you need, I, I, th I think one of my show rules has this, you need like two people who can bang out draft after draft after draft, right? You need one person on the staff who can run the room, who can, uh, who can foster consensus, who can pull out ideas, who has enough energy to stand at the board and point and so on and so forth. You need one person who, can, who, who is filled up with ideas, even if they can't write to save their life, but will always, when you get stuck, gives you a new way in or a new turn around the corner, so on and so forth. You need somebody who can make everybody laugh. It, when things are dark, right? You need, you need somebody who can keep track of character arcs and, you know, all these sorts of things. So it's less about seven great writers and more about seven people who fit together to, to be able to essentially create one great uh, uh, um, story-generating monster. <laughs> or right. Or a positive monster. I don't know what they would uh, goddess, god, you know, god, goddess, whatever. Um, in terms of young writers, you know, they come from a couple different um, different places. You know, you get them through your agency, you get them through your manager, you get them through other other people who call you and say, "Oh my god, you've got to hire this person. They're really smart." Um, uh, diversity programs. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways, but but essentially, for the most part. You know, the, the hardest thing right now is that there are, and I guess it's always been this way, there, there are 50 people for every one job down at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And so someone has to come to you, and unless you just find them, you know, at your local coffee shop and you get to know them, someone has to come to you and say, this person is great and smart. And you, get, and you start a relationship with them, and then you, and then you, you join that opinion. Right. Um, when you say uh, getting a call from somebody, who would, in terms of like who calling you, vouching for well, a young writer, whose opinion would you consider valuable? Well, other showrunners is, is helpful. Sure. Um, mostly because they've, you know, one of the rules of showrunners is don't lie about your staff, right? right. Don't. Because because the one of the last things you do before you go to hire somebody is you call someone they just worked with and said, are they insane? Like <laughs> what exactly? You know what what what's the what's the downside here? Or right. or just simply tell me tell me that they're great. So you know what what tends to happen is um, so I have the I have the half dozen young writers who I've worked with who I care about right mm -hmm. and and uh, show somebody will get a show on deadline you know. Uh, uh, Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo has got the following show on Life of Time TV. And two of my young writers will call me and say, hey, do you know Jane Schmo? 
Or do you have any relationship with Jane Schmo? Why? Because I, I got I'm trying to get a meeting and so on and so forth, and then I will either if I know her, or if I have some connection to her, I'll write her an email saying, "Hey, I'm really supporting this writer. If you've got if you want to know anything about them, call me. Here's my cell phone. If I know them directly, I'll just call them and say, "Hey, you got to hire this person." Mm-hmm. And I believe that that phone call or the reverse where they call me is really meaningful because it cuts. I don't know. It's like it's like dating, you know. It's like the difference between a blind date and Tinder. I guess I've never been on Tinder, so now I'm just rambling. <laughs> right. um, but you know what I'm saying? Like the difference between somebody saying to you, "This person is not insane. This person will not try to boil your rabbit," um, is a is a because there are lots of people who will boil your rabbit. Right. Um, and the worst and the worst thing you can have it get into is in the middle of the season realize somebody's utterly insane. Right. <laughs> that's, that's about the worst. Um, so, if a newer writer doesn't have those kind of contacts, they've never been on a staff, they don't have a showrunner who can vouch for them, they don't have other writer-producers, maybe, that you've worked with before that can vouch for them, uh, what sort of, at least what sort of skills, like if they sat down, maybe their agent or manager set up a meeting, or a network executive set up a meeting with you, a staffing meeting, what other than good writing ability and hey, I've got a cool personality, what sort of skills that they could have would impress you? Well, because um, they've never run a room before, they don't, they may not have. Well, a, and, and they don't have to. They, you know, you, you don't. You know, if you're at the bottom of the staff, what you're there to do is you're there to have boundless energy to write whatever the hell somebody says to you to write right. and, to, and to show up every day with a passion to make the thing go. That's really all you're being asked to do. You're not asked to do much else. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I ask staff writers to write scripts, but a lot of show writers don't. Right. They're just to generate pages and to do research and to come up with ideas. And, you know, so you're, that, it, it helps to have led an interesting life. It helps to have a, you know, a personality that jibes with other people. Um, it helps to not um, be too precious about anything you write because it's going to get rewritten. Um, you know, look, if, if I were back, I never went through the staffing thing. I went, I sort of was a feature writer and then I started creating shows and then I started writing shows. I never, I sort of didn't go up the, the ladder. But if I were doing that and I were in a meeting with a showrunner and I, and, and, trying to get my first job, I would come in with um, a list of phone numbers of all the people that they could call to, to vouch for me. I'd say, this is my mother. You should call her. Um, this, is, uh, this, is, this is my ex-girlfriend from six years ago. You should call her. We broke up, but she'll still say I'm not I'm saying. You know, I would just try to charm them with, the, with my ability to understand, to say, I know what you need. You need a sane human being who's going to throw you ideas and pages, and I can do that. Right. Um, and, and that's really what you're, what you're pushing. If somebody has worked, for example, maybe they were a PA or they worked, you know, on set or they worked in casting or something like that, does that help at all? Because I know that sometimes if they are asked to produce an episode or go to set, that shorthand might come in handy or is that sort of irrelevant to everything else? No, no. Most of, most of the people who I move over to the writer side have come from somewhere. Um, one of, one of the, uh, the, the woman who became the writer's assistant on NOLA had come through the uh, post-production side okay. and knew enough 
about the world to be able to talk intelligently about it. So it's less about the it's less of the skill set necessarily moves over. It's that it's that it it helps me endlessly for you to know what happened nine episodes ago because I don't have to tell you, you know. And so I got more from her than I got from much higher level writers who'd come in from the outside because they just didn't do the work to know what the show was. Right. Um, and and that's you know. The shorthand of being able to say, oh, we did that before, or, oh, remember when that happened? Or, here's this idea from back then that we can move forward. And that comes from being around. I, I, you know, again, when you're looking for that job where you're going to meet all the people who are eventually going to give you the job that you want, if you can find a way into those worlds, um, the person who I, who I knew from Twitter who I gave a job, I, I, I said, look, this is not, there's no great pay in this job. It was the PA job on one of my shows. Mm-hmm. I said, but you've got you to get into the world. You've got to be here. Otherwise, you'll spend your time on the outside being smart and writing great scripts, and no one will know who you are. You know, and so take any job that gets you into the world because it, it just means you start meeting people. Right. We were talking before we came on about because you've worked both in cable and network. Uh, and there's a huge prevalence of that sort of internet media. Um, maybe you can sort of recap uh, a lot, because you have some great, great information and insights on the difference between working in network television versus cable television versus sort of that new media internet side, because it's all ultimately the same product, a, a, a visual story that's you know, played on a television screen or a cell phone or anything in between? You know, there are cable shows in which the entire season is uh, plotted and outlined and written and shot before any of it is ever put on the air. You know, the Netflix model, even, right. even the HBO model. And that allows for a kind of completion and... Um, and um, poetic uh, uh, artistry that, that simply having a 24 episodes on network is, it's almost impossible to do. Now there's some shows that have done incredibly well and, and I give them all the props, but you you really are working from the seat of your pants because, you know, because you're, because there's sometimes there are episodes of, of a network television that you finish posting on a Friday and they air on a Tuesday. Right. Oh, and so the, the amount of, ability to control all the elements is so limited that you're really just trying to hang on to the tail of the tiger and not get thrown off. Um, and so they're, they really are just different entities, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's easier for people from network world to move over to cable than it is necessarily for cable people to move over to network because there are just, um, you get paid more for network. And part of the reason right. you get paid more for network is because it's a, it's a just, I don't want to say a harder job. It's just a less glor- uh, glorified job. The things you do on a daily basis on network television are figure out how to make compromises artistic, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it really is. You know, from from oh, we couldn't get this actor because they're over there, and we can't wait because we have to shoot today. Right. To oh in order to make our budget, we had to make a deal with the following car company. And so this scene that was supposed to be about a character um, um, reacting to their rape is a scene about them reacting to their rape in a Toyota RAV4. Um, You know, these are the kinds of things that that, that become 
your daily existence. Um, in cable, because again, there's more planning time, there's more shooting time, there's more post time, there's reshooting time. In a Netflix model, you put the whole thing together and you've looked at the entire essentially movie before anyone's ever seen it. The opportunity to get it, which there are still plenty of compromises. There's still plenty of times where, you know, look, we, we have to leave this location. We can't stay here anymore. You're done, right? That, all sorts of things happen. But, but you have control of, you have control of the beast in a way that you simply don't in network television. Right. Um, certainly with 24 episodes or 22 episodes. I mean, look, even even to the fact that a lot of network television starts out as a 13 episode order and then somewhere around episode nine, they say, keep going. Right. Or, they say, or they say, you're done. And, right. you know, and, right. and so, you know, it's very much more you wake up every day on network television and go, okay, well, what's going to happen today? I don't know. In the three years I was running the show with Craig and Liz, you know, we had some opportunity to really plot out what the entire season looked like on some level. And we had some, we had some time before the season starts to say, okay, we're going to totally change directions here. Right. That's just infinitely harder to do in a network show. You know, good, good examples are you see more cable shows where season two and season three will have almost nothing to do with each other. I'm looking thinking about a halt and catch fire where I believe in season three, they're going to go from Texas to California, right? Everybody got on a plane at the end of season two, they went to California, right? Right. Right. Uh, or Mad Men has done that at times, right? They've just changed everything as a way of, you know, that never happens in network television. Mm -hmm. the, the the Friends crew did not all of a sudden decide, oh, you know, this season we're in uh, Seattle. Right. Um, because there's no time to rebuild sets, and there's no time to do this, and also the the economics are such that it just doesn't behoove you to, to make those kind of big artistic changes. Right. What's the best part about writing in either TV feature, you know, writing in the industry, being a screenwriter, TV writer? Um, I have these moments where, you know, I've, I've been writing for professionally for 17 years. I got my first job in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, or I guess 19 years, is it? No, yeah. Anyway, um, and um, I will go back and look at the scripts that I've written, and they will seem to me like foreign entities. Like I will read them and I'll laugh, and and then I'll realize, oh wait a second, I wrote this. Um, and to me, it is that weird spirit within one that causes one to have a set of ideas and write them down on paper, and uh, and then not exactly know where it came from, you know. Um, I also, I'm a, an old theater guy, um, hmm. um, and I, I massively appreciate the process of collaborating with people, um, which is why I ultimately found film to be so lonely. I, I'm not the guy who wants to go even sit in, you know, some, in Sedona on some hill with a glass of wine and the most beautiful surroundings, and, 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 be, and be alone. Right. I get lonely. I get mm -hmm. lonely. And um, there's something pretty pretty profound and wonderful about the collaboration that comes from, from you know, between actors and directors and writers and, and producers. And, um, you know, I love, I love hanging out with a prop guy who comes and says, hey, you know, here are the three guns. This one does this, this one does that, and this one means this, and having that 
you know, the or the moment when you decide what kind of watch a character wears. Right. Um, you know, it's all very specific, and, and I find that, that to be pretty wonderful as well. Right. Um, okay, well, then we have to jump to the other side of the tracks. What is the worst part about writing for TV film, you know, writing in, in Hollywood? Well, I, I think, you know, everybody comes into Hollywood wanting to tell stories, right? And mm-hmm. so much about Hollywood is not about that. It's about commerce. Right. Um, and and I, you accept that. I mean, that's why they pay you. You know, the reason they give you the money is because somebody else paid them the money. So, I mean, you have to accept that. But, I mean, I think you and I were talking before about, you know, you, you're on a network television show and the, the budgets are getting smaller and you're trying to figure out how to make, way to make your budget. So you make a deal. Uh, the, the network makes a deal to get X number of dollars for featuring a car, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, the audiences hate it because they can, they can smell the integration coming, but you hate it because you've got a scene between character A and character B where they, where character A discusses how she was raped and, you know, or her feelings about it and so, so forth. But really that scene is about the hatchback on the Kia four door that you <laughs> right. have to show off, you know, and you suddenly, you know, the more it becomes about that, the harder it is to remember, like, why am I doing this? What right. Is, you know, what, what is it really about? I, I do think, I do think it does. There's a, there's a real moment where people realize, Oh, the reason this job is so well remunerated it's because it's about something else. All the television, you know, is about something else. Uh, and network television is about commercials. On cable television, it's about subscriptions, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, if you really want to write your art, you have to become a novelist. Um, so it's, I mean, I. It's the worst part. It's the worst part, but I mean, you have to accept it. Otherwise, you should do something else. Right. You know, and I, I think in the grand scheme of things, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, it's just you have to say, oh, this is this is a trade-off. Right. In order for me to get, in order for them to pay me a, a living wage, and for for me to get health insurance and all the things, you know, to take care of myself and my family, I have to accept that part of this is about featuring the the logo for the Kia four-door in my, in my scene about the emotional damage my character's been. Right. <laughs> All right, but make it a black Kia, at least. Yeah. Help me out a yeah. little bit. Right, I got you. Yeah. You, um, you, would, you wouldn't, one, would, one would, not, would be shocked at how much time is spent managing those things as opposed to, say, the story of a show. Right. Where you're like, where is, where is the car? Is the car going to be on set? The car's not going to be on set? Do you have the same one you had last time? We don't have that same one. Wait, the feature <laughs> is this feature? How do we use this? And you know, and literally, you know, four hours of your day is gone. Oh, crazy! Yeah. Oh, all that can do is elicit a sigh. <laughs> yeah, but but again, again, in the grand scheme of things, sure, it's a pretty good set of problems to have. Right, right. Uh, first world problems, Hollywood problems, I guess. Right. Yes, I totally agree. Um. As a writer, I, I just wanted to talk about process for a moment because we've never really done that, but it's always something that's kind of uh, in the back of my head that I, I want to bring up, but we never sort of get to it because there's so much other great stuff, but I wanted to do it right now. I wanted to talk to you about your process. Uh, sure. Writing pro- I mean, everything from um, when you have a treatment for an episode or just sitting down to write your draft, do you lock yourself up in your office? Do you go to a coffee shop? Are you constantly breaking up the writing with other things, or do you write uh, straight through with as few distractions as possible? Do you listen to music, silence, all that stuff? 
Um, so, yeah. What is your I, process um, like? I have a version of ADD, I guess, undiagnosed. So I try to do everything in fits and starts. I try to break, when I'm running a show, I try to break up the day. So I come in in the morning, I deal with a bunch of phone calls, I do a little writing, I go into the room with the writers, we work some stuff out, I leave, I do a little more writing. Um, I uh, deal with some casting stuff, I take a notes call of some sort, I do a little writing. And then at the end of the day, I set aside enough time to try and finish whatever needs to be accomplished. And then I go home, I hang with my family. And then in the middle of the night, I do a little more writing. So I try to break it up as much as possible. But by the end of the season, just time is what it is. And so you have to end up locking yourself in a room and that's what you have to spend your time doing, right? Um, uh, so um, when I'm not running a show, mm-hmm. like I am now, and I'm in, I'm in, I'm in um, development world, it's not too dissimilar, except it's things like take the dogs in a walk. Right. Um, um, or get uh, get the kids uh, set up to go skiing or whatever it is. Um, I tend to like music um, a lot uh, there, um, and I also tend to like to not be alone, which I think I, I, I hinted at earlier. So I, I tend to write in coffee shops okay. with, with a little noise going on in the background and, and a little you know stuff happening, um, partially because I find that ideas find a way to seep their way into your work and you just need them to be coming in in order for them to go out. So if, you, if you've if you locked yourself in a room, you're, you're stuck with only the ideas you came into that room with. And if you're out in the world, there are things constantly pushing themselves at you that you go, oh, my God, that can be used. I wonder if I could, hey, there's a poetic idea there. And, you know, um, so it's helpful to me to have a constant set of input so that I so that I have more ways to make output. Mm-hmm. Now, do you um, have one of those internet blockers when you're writing? I I don't. Um, or do you have I good don't. self-restraint and discipline? Well, I I also don't believe on the whole that you can. The, the internet blocker is great, right. except if you need to go check the internet. I mean, it, it's it's a false concept right mm-hmm. like if you're if you're being pulled to check the internet well that's what's happening within you and to try and somehow um, force yourself to not uh, uh, follow that inspiration is is sort of a false idea I think the bigger idea is to say to yourself okay why is it that I want to go check the internet what is it that I don't understand about this scene and therefore I'm frustrated with uh, I find that the minute I know what the scene's about, I can write it in no time flat. Um, and then I'll spend a while rewriting it. It's when I don't know what I'm doing that I will spend my time um, dithering. Um, uh, currently, I'm in the middle of a, a bunch of different pieces of development, and um, I knew I, I was get closing in on an idea when I was writing all Saturday uh, on the idea of this treatment, and I went to bed, and by 6 o'clock the next morning, I was up again back at it, it was done by 7.30 in the morning. Hmm. That kind of efficiency tells me I understand what I'm doing. Um, I, can, I can have two notes on a script, and if I don't know how to solve them, I'll spend all my time checking progressive blogs and um, worrying about the Cubs. <laughs> right, right. You know. Um, when you're not developing something with a network or a studio or anything like that, how 
do you develop a story in terms of do you use note cards? Do you just do beat sheets? Do you do a full treatment? Again, if you're not developing it with another entity, but just for your own, you know, before you start writing. I, I, I had lots of different ways. I, I will, uh, note cards are really useful to me because you write them down and you start to put them through and you put them in order and you start to figure out story-wise. Um, that's a really good, I'm kind of catch-as-catch-can. I will, I've got a, a notebook file on my Mac that I will throw ideas into. It's the least efficient way of doing anything. I have a <laughs> Word file or something. But for something about it, something about it works for me, and so I throw ideas into that. Um, I have a, a, a small group of friends who I do a writer's group with, and we'll go bat things around. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly chaotic, but it, um, it eventually moves down the road to note cards, Outlines, treatments, all the sorts of things that are that are the staples of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I also have a big, a, a big proponent of of following a passion. So sometimes I'll just write a scene, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's better to go and explore than to. Ch- almost none of this stuff can be worked out completely in your head. Uh, maybe some people can, I can't, and so. You know, the the worst thing you can do in my mind is to try to shut yourself off and again create some false processes where you're like, I'm not going to write until I get it all figured out. Well, if you're if you spent four days not figuring it out, write something. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, just right. because what what do you have to lose? You throw it out. You you know, um, I think I think one of the things that moves you from a novice writer to a professional writer is the understanding that you can write things. They can be for shit, they can go in the trash, and that's not a failure. Right. How many ideas are you working on at the same time? Like, when you start, uh, like, one script, are you able to write that script and develop other things at the same, again, not on a show. Obviously, if you're a show running, there's nothing but show running. Um, But, like, when you are developing something uh, and writing it, are you still developing other things? Or or, or maybe another way to ask is, how many projects or ideas or things are you developing at the same time? I tend to have three things going at once. So, so right now I have, I have sort of an A thing that I'm doing right now. i got a meeting on today at four. I'll find out how it's moving forward. I've got sort of a B and C thing that are, that are in note cord form or in phone call form or I'm trying to figure out. Um, and then I'll have, you know, because I, I'm fortunate enough to be where I am in the industry, I will have two or three things that I'll sort of circle. Somebody calling me to say, hey, are you available for staffing here? Are you? Would you consult on this? And you know, which requires some reading. So I, I say I have two or three things that are in active, turning from clay into an item mode, and another two or three things which are sort of hopeful, like I don't cook a lot of out of the woodwork mode, that requires some reading or thinking or whatever. Um, that tends to be how I work. Um, it's why it's why I haven't written, um, you know, to to my managers somewhat dismay. I haven't locked myself in a room and written a script in a, a long period of time because I'm always sort of bubbling around a b- bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a script that is wholly mine for my my own creation. Um, that doesn't tend to be how my brain works. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I get it. That's. Uh... It's good to know, I think, for a lot of writers out there as well. Uh, although <laughs> the most important thing, for especially for new writers, not in your position, obviously, is just keep writing. You got to have something. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, you, it's, it's this combo of you have these sets of relationships and then you build these sets of relationships and then somebody says, what? You write, right? You know, right. hey, I'm a this. Can I read something? And that's the moment you have to have something you care about, right? right. Um, so the writing is there as the, as the, as the foundation for ready and, and, and uh, sound enough so that when someone says, okay, let's build a house, you can go do it together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing worse than saying, I'm a writer, and somebody says, oh, send me something. You're like, well, I got a this and I got a that, and then seven months passed, and then that, <laughs> I, that relationship is, is burned, right? Right, right. Um, that's why you have to be writing. You know, uh, it, it, it costs people nothing to say they're a writer. The proof is in the pudding. Right. So, and that goes to another question, because uh, we get asked it a lot, and is when is somebody a writer? Because so many writers say that they are a writer, and what have you written? Nothing. Or other writers have written 12 things, but they don't feel comfortable calling themselves a writer because they haven't sold anything or staffed on a show yet. So they, don't, they haven't made a check from writing. So when should a writer call themselves a writer? I think there are two terms, right? There's a writer and a professional writer. Mm. If you write, you are a writer, right? I'm a writer, right? Mm. I write. I, I have this blog. I have this thing. I have these recipes. I, have a, I write, right? I, I'm a writer. Um, in the same way, I'm, a, I, I'm, an, I'm a, an exerciser. I exercise, right? Mm-hmm. I think you move to being a professional writer when, 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 you have, when you are in the process of making actual um, product. So, so, and that can go for, I, I, I've got a bunch of meetings with people that are going to lead to something. I have, um, I, I, I am on a staff. Uh, I have written this film that people have options. You know, I think that's the, the, sh- the shift between the two. And, and I really, I, I would urge people to be as, as, the problem comes with those who want to sh- jump ahead, not with those who are trying to fortify their real artistic self. Meaning, I want everyone, I would hope everyone would be as generous with themselves as possible, which is to say, if you write, if you make good faith efforts, if you, if you have things you've completed, you are a writer, right? right. It's the other side where people want, want credit for things, where they're like, oh, I'm a writer. And you say to them, well, what have you done? And they say, I haven't, I bet, I'm gonna, I'm, you know. And then you say, you want to say to them, no, you're not yet, you know. Um, to say to oneself that they are a writer is an easier line to understand than to be able to go out in the world and say to everyone, oh, I'm a professional writer, because right. you either are or you aren't. Right, right. I play baseball. I'm not a professional baseball player, <laughs> you know. Um, but, I play, but I play baseball. I legitimately play, play baseball, and I'm proud of um, my, you know, ever-waning abilities. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know... Something about being a writer and being an actor, uh, even being a director, is a harder line to, with humility, say, I think. You know, mm. people feel comfortable saying, I'm a ba- you know, hey, I play baseball, I'm a baseball player, because people understand that th- it's very clear that you're not trying to say that I play for the Mets. Right. Um, when you say I'm an actor, a lot of people say that with the idea of, of, uh, of fronting to the world that they could be on. Uh, they could be the star of Batman next week. Right. Or even a commercial. I mean, you land a commercial, yeah. you're a paid professional actor, right? 
Yeah, no, no, to- totally legit. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just being able to to, to monitor <laughs> that line. But I think if you are in actual uh, pursuit of the act of the craft of writing, then I think you can say to yourself, "I'm a writer." Right. Right. And another thing is that uh, overnight success, and I'm sure it happens, especially with actors. Uh, but oftentimes, that commercial that they walked in to an audition, they booked a commercial, they spent two days on set and made 30 or 40 grand for a national spot. It's like, oh, that's easy money, but you don't count the money they spent on headshots and the 200 auditions they drove all over town to do that they didn't get. So like writing, it's putting in your, paying your dues and working at getting better and doing what you need to do to meet people, casting directors, or, you know, in our case, you know, meeting people in the business to get to that position. It's not just walking up with a script saying, okay, where do I, you know, yeah, I'm a oh, writer, hire me. I, I, got my, I got my first job in 1997, and I went from being an unemployed writer to a, a, a screenwriter overnight. Mm-hmm. But that overnight should have a huge asterisk, asterisk, which was I spent two years out here pounding the pavement. I'd been a playwright in Chicago. I'd been an actor in Chicago. I went to theater school. I did this. I, did this. I read yeah. Eugene O'Neill on the train on the way to my accounting job. <laughs> I, you know, I studied, you know. So th- there are some overnight ex- successes. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they tend to be incredibly beautiful people, of which I am not. Um, <laughs> but most of it is, is the overnight success that took seven years to create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and also because part of part of having something to contribute is having lived some sort of life, right? Um, and it, it's very hard to come in again without any ideas pushed towards you, um, and be able to, to produce something that is interesting and compelling, and you know has some level of of juice that that hopefully millions and millions of other people understand. Right. Absolutely. Uh, who are the Cubs going to play in the World Series from the American League? The Chicago Cubs are going to play... Since they couldn't play the Miami Marlins or Miami whatever. <laughs> last yeah, again. Back to the future. Um, boy, that's a really good question. Uh, I want to say... I don't know. I, I, I really so... I'm so hyper-focused on... Look, t- you... I already won. You just told me that they're going to play in the World Series, right? right. That's all I need right now. <laughs> I, just, I just need to break that one little... We will break that eggshell, and then we'll work on the next one. So if the Cubs are in the World Series, and any team from the American League is in the World Series, and it's not some fake World Series where they just gave it to them, like, you know, then I'm fine. <laughs> you pick the team, I'm happy. All right. Now, that's fair. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's. I think it's going to be a good good year for the Cubs. I really do. Uh, from your lips, my friend. From your lips. Yeah, and I mean, I'm hoping the good good year for the Dodgers too. I know they lost uh, Granky and stuff, but you know, and they they can't keep a pitching staff together. They're just it's like a mashup. No. Well, but, but they they've done that LA thing again, which, yeah. is, which is that they that they went and spent a lot of money and you know it's it, LA tends to foster this star system and it's much harder for them to do what the Cubs in theory have done and other teams have done which is sort of spend 10 years being bad 
yeah. and build and build a team from people who are going to hang around for a long time. Right. It seems like they're actually taking some sort of middle ground road. They're not even going after the big stars that you, you know, have a good shot at being a superstar this year. And they don't tend to, and they're not in the position, although they've got a great minor league system, like the Cubs, where they're developing young talent. They seem to be going after these, like, stars that have issues, like injury problems, so you can get them at a discount. And, like, we spent a lot of money the past couple years, so let's try to go on the cheap, and they're getting people with with problems or going after Cuban uh, uh, players who, you know, 50-50 chance they aren't actually going to be good or not, you know, these kinds of things, or... Right, right. Well, it's, it's that thing where you, where you, where, where you, where the name sounds good if it were five years ago. Right. Or, you know, and that's always a problem because you think, oh my God, we got you know Manny Ramirez, Manny Ramirez, and then right. you're like, he retired, didn't he? You know. Right. Exactly. That would have been great a long time ago. Um, and lastly, uh, what are you watching now? I just like to ask folks. Um, I. I I am uh, massively awaiting the next season of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I'm um, toggling through uh, Better Call Saul, which I either love in an episode or um, wish that there was sort of more juice there. I, I go back and forth with that. I, it, um, and then there's a bunch of things that I sort of sampled a little bit here and there. I mean, we really have reached a point where there's just more television and pretty good television that you, than you could ever watch. And I'm, and I'm having an interesting struggle with the pace of television, certainly in the cable realm, whereby the conceptual model is to now slow it so much down mm-hmm. and slow it down and slow it down yeah. to the point that, that I think we may have, we may have gone too slow now because there are a lot of TV shows that you can skip the first three or four episodes mm. in some senses, right? Um, because you don't, you know, because nothing really happens, right? Um, I, you know, I, I have one of these rules about pacing in television, which is, you know, pacing is hard to figure out. Too slow was the first season of Carnival. Too fast was the second season of Carnival. <laughs> um, um, and. Um, I feel like we've there's a lot of TV shows that are moving more towards the first season of Carnival right. than um, than I, that, you know, so that I'll watch something. This is interesting and good, but you know, is this a TV show? I'm not sure. Right. What What are you watching? Um, yeah, I'm, I the slow burn of of Better Call Saul at the beginning. It's I was yeah on that fence, but the more I watch it, and the more you see even something like with Jimmy McGill and that coffee mug and that car, we can't, can't get the coffee mug into the drink yeah. holder and how it's still now to, you know, uh, it's been playing like that for the whole season and, and it's starting to sort of pay off. And so when you're starting to see these things that they've seeded for, for so long start to pay off, I, I, I'm, I'm digging it. But again, it has to have that payoff and you have to be able to get through all the slow parts and, and, and sometimes, yeah, I, I get it where it's, you wonder if, uh, if I could just skip stuff and would you really miss anything? Right. Because it just moves so right. slowly. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, better call, I mean, better call Saul and game of Thrones. Obviously everyone loves game of Thrones, walking dead and fear the walking dead. Um, a huge fan of, of, that um, I, I have not I have not headed down that road. I've never watched an episode um, mm. um, um, of either show or just Fear the Walking Dead. Of either show. Oh, okay. Um, at some point, I should you know now I, I wonder if I, if I 
can go back and start at the beginning and if it will have any effect or if it's one of those shows that so fits into the zeitgeist that you have to be sort of in on the moment. Um, I don't think I, so. I, I happen, oh, good. Well, I, 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 I happen to go back and watch some of the first season of, of The Sopranos, and that show right. is, so, um, is so wonderful outside any time frame. I sat down and started watching it. I was like, wow, yeah. this is just really good. Right. Um, uh, another one of the things I did, did on Twitter at one point that I thought was interesting, and again, just tells you where we are, is if you try to list a dozen TV shows mm-hmm. pre-Sopranos that you can recommend to watch episode one to finale, right. you will struggle to find 12 one-hour television shows. Hmm. Interesting. I, 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 I've got a list out there somewhere. Maybe I'll repost it after this. You know, this but I mean... Try it. Try to come up with the 12 TV shows that you say, okay, I recommend the show Soup to Nuts, right? Right. Now, there's almost, you know, 10 times that, five times that shows that you could say, watch this, watch that, watch this beginning to end, you know, and and that tells you how things have changed in a way. Uh, There may be 12 shows running now that you and I could come up with that you could say, watch the whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that tells you how how different a world we live in than we did when 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 the 20th, 20th century became the 21st century. Absolutely. And uh, Trey, I was talking to Trey Calloway the other day, and he had mentioned something, and I, I don't know. I'm assuming his numbers are correct. He's uh, obviously more, connect, more connected to it than I am. That I guess last year there was something like 290-something scripted shows on television or you know on some form of broadcast whether it's right, internet right and he said this season he thinks that there is going to be over 400 uh, yeah that was the, that was the number i heard too which was that we've reached a point you know and there's this argument which is how, how we reach what's called peak tv right and that's the you know um and in some ways i think we have in 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 the sense that in in the sense that as the audience became bifurcated and trifurcated and whatever the word for 400 bifurcated is you know at what point is an audience so small that it can't support the financial element that is, that, that is required to create it? Right. Um, and I think we, we, we're closing in on that, but we're also closing just in on the, on, on the uh, a point where, where just simply the amount of things... I mean, again, this goes back to, and maybe I said this before we talked or, or now, but, you know, I think, you know, the reason I, you can't write a spec TV show for something on the air and ask me to judge your writing on it is there are 400 TV shows of right. which I can watch five. Right. And so, and so if you wrote it, you wrote a spec show of togetherness, which I guess just got canceled. I've never seen the episode of togetherness. Right. I've never seen the episode of, of, of The Walking Dead, which everybody has seen. Right. Um, just, just because I haven't had the time to invest in it. And even if I did watch The Walking Dead, I'm probably not current. At which point, your attempt to write a spec episode of a TV show that is constantly moving, the three, three of the characters you write in your episode are probably dead. Right. <laughs> you know, by the time you finish. Um, and so, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating time to be a TV writer. Right. Um, uh, and the challenges are so different than they were five years ago or ten years ago, really. Um, um Specifically because because the kind you know it used to be cops and lawyers and doctors right mm-hmm. 
now now it's zombies and um, dragons and, and dragons and um, uh, uh, mumblecore relationships in apartments in Seattle yeah. and <laughs> train tracks in the in the 1700s. I mean, like yeah. We've we've moved so far away from that, uh, um, and, and yet you still are tr- everyone's trying to get that, find that 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 thing which will create a cultural moment where lots of people will have to watch it at this given time. Right, and it's so rare, but it's yeah, it's amazing when yeah. it happens. Um, and sort of as yeah, a, dis- it, a disclaimer for The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead feel like two very different shows. It almost feels like Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. And what I mean by that is the original show seems to have, uh, granted they had three showrun, three or four showrunners, so it's tonally it changes from season to season. They're, they're, right. I've enjoyed them all, but it does change noticeably. Um, but it, there's there's more going on. There's more characters. There's more going on. It's it's you're kind of just thrust into this world. Whereas with like with Better Call Saul, Fear the Walking Dead is sort of a slow burn. And at the beginning, especially coming from The Walking Dead, it, it was a little uncomfortable. It's like, is this going to go anywhere? It's kind of dragging. Right. But the more you get into it in the characters, then you start to to to, to vibe on it. Because I know how that can just can can become this kind of meandering mess that doesn't really go anywhere or takes forever to get anywhere and you just give up on it so i I didn't do that i I enjoyed it so that's my disclaimer if you're going to watch fear the walking dead first because it's sort of a prequel be aware that it's a slow sort of burn whereas the walking dead it's not at all yes and 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 the same look i mean it's the same exactly with medical saw which is that it's the prequel right but but it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to watch it if they're not the same TV show, and they're and they're interesting for different for totally different reasons. I mean, I had the same reaction again, being a, a massive fan of what they did with with Breaking Bad. It mm. took me a while, and it's still I have moments where I where I sort of jump out of Better Call Saul and just say, I wish it had a little more urgency to it. Right. Um, I can do that. I thought the same. But yeah, but I res- but I respect deeply what it's done. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. As always, it's a blast chatting with you. Uh, I, I really appreciate it, and um, uh, I, I hope we can book now uh, this conversation in uh, sort of late September for either your therapy session for me in terms of what's <laughs> happened with the Chicago Cubs or my ability to really revel in this one moment. Uh, uh, I guess we'll have to do it, you know, day one of the of the World Series, whatever that is. And yeah, absolutely. There. And. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's always because I understand how it can be with the regular season. It's it doesn't mean anything. Look at the, that Seattle team that won what 116 games or something and just flamed out. So I, I, I get that. We don't want to jump the gun, but mm, quietly we'll have good feelings about the Cubs this year. Yes, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, be sure to follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Lieber. You should all you should be following him for sure, 100. percent Can't recommend that enough. Um, Thank you. Kevin, this has been a real pleasure, as always. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you all for listening.